Hello and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thanks for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's free resources, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Welcome. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for drawing us together as you have, and I pray that I'd not get in the way of what you plan to do, but that you would speak to the glory of Christ's name alone. Amen. The last time we were together, we learned of the clash between King Xerxes' chief official Haman and the Jewish exile Mordecai. Haman was enraged by Mordecai's refusal to bow to the ground whenever he passed. And when he found out about Mordecai's Jewish heritage, Haman decided to settle an old score between his people and the people of Israel. His ancestors, the Amalekites, had sought to destroy God's people in the past, and now he wanted to finish the task. Following the custom of his day, he inquired of his gods by using lots to determine when the death sentence should be carried out. The whole idea of casting lots was to allow destiny or fortune or your deity of choice to randomly determine the best chance for success. Unknown to Haman, however, there was nothing random about it. God was at work even here through a pagan man to accomplish his purpose and ensure that his people had time to do something about the decree. The lots indicated to Haman that the best date was 12 months away, so he had plenty of time to set his plan in motion. Through deception and bribery, he obtained permission from Xerxes to eliminate an entire group of people who were supposedly threatening the kingdom. And he quickly sent out orders that on the 13th day of the 12th month, the people of Persia were to destroy all Jews, young and old, women and children alike, and to plunder their goods. As we saw last week, Mordecai and his fellow countrymen immediately cried out to God in deep distress when they heard the decree, dressing in sackcloth and ashes as they prayed and fasted before the Lord. Mordecai did not hide his distress. In fact, we're told that he went about the city of Susa wailing loudly and bitterly. So let's resume our story in Esther chapter 4 verse 4. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. 
He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. You will remember that Esther had obeyed Mordecai's command and had kept her true identity a secret when she'd been taken to the palace. No one knew that she was Jewish, and living a sheltered life within the palace walls, she was unaware of the plot against her people. But when news of her relative's strange behavior reached her, she immediately sent a messenger to Mordecai to find out what was wrong. Mordecai gave the exact details of what had occurred and even sent her a copy of the edict. Hoping she would understand the dreadful truth of their situation, he asked her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy. If Hathak and her handmaidens had not guessed her Jewish heritage before now, they certainly knew it now. Mordecai revealed it all when he told her to plead with Xerxes for her people. Let's read on. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But thirty days have passed, since I was called to go to the king. Esther's reply should not be seen as a refusal to do what Mordecai had asked, but rather as an expression of the extreme danger his request put her in. There was a law against entering the king's presence uninvited, and anyone who did so would immediately be put to death unless the king chose to spare their life. Esther wanted Mordecai to understand that the king had not invited her into his presence for the past month. And one must ask the question, did that mean that Xerxes' enchantment with Esther had waned? Had she displeased him in some way? Was he perhaps fixated on another woman at this time? We're not told, but the fact that Esther had not been summoned for so long added to her fear. There was no guarantee that the king would be pleased by her coming uninvited into his presence. She wanted Mordecai to know exactly what he was asking of her. Back to verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. I'm sure Mordecai's heart was moved by Esther's distress. He had spent his entire life protecting her from danger. 
but he knew she needed to hear something other than comfort from him at this point. She needed to recognize that death awaited her, whether or not she went into the king. When the thirteenth day of the twelfth month arrived, even she would not be safe from the edict. And he said two other important things to her as well in verse 14. First, he said that should she choose to do nothing, relief and deliverance for the Jews would come through someone else. For God would not abandon his people. He would deliver them. But then he invited her to consider a second, more personal thing. Who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Was she the instrument God would use to accomplish his purposes for his people? As you can imagine, this was a lot for Esther to consider. What was she to do? Verse 15. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. What an amazing display of courage and faith. We've pointed out that God's name is not mentioned in the book of Esther. So how do we know that faith played a part in all of this? It's because of her request that all Jews in Susa join with her and her maids fasting for three days. This type of fast, known as the complete fast, has always been reserved for times of extreme distress. People would go without food or drink for a maximum period of three days in order to pray and seek God's face. Esther promised that at the completion of the fast, she would do as Mordecai requested. She said, I will go to the king even though it's against the law and if I perish, I perish. I want us to consider Esther's courage for a moment. So often we look at individuals in scripture and we presume that they were some kind of superhumans, that they had some kind of grit or power that we just don't have, but they really didn't. I'm sure Esther felt afraid, and she had good reason to, but she didn't let her fear stop her from doing the right thing, the thing that needed to be done. In that, she showed great courage, but it was a courage that was fueled by faith. She believed God would help his people, and she was willing to do what lay before her and leave the outcome in God's hands. Nelson Mandela, the heroic South African leader who'd been imprisoned for many years, said that he had learned courage is not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. The brave man is not he who does not feel afraid, but he who conquers that fear. So often people hope that God will intervene in their difficult circumstances, but they're unwilling to do their part to simply do the next right thing that lies before them. 
When we find ourselves in those situations, we should remember Esther's example here. She didn't turn away from the realities of her situation. She found the courage to act, but her courage was born out of faith. She knew she needed God's help, and so she sought him first of all. Then she did what needed to be done, trusting him with the outcome. Chapter 5 reveals what happened when the fast ended. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the outer court of the palace, in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. As Esther hovered outside the door of the throne room, her heart must have been pounding, and I'm sure she was quietly praying to God. How would Xerxes react? Would he be angry or would he show her favor? And then the miraculous happened. Look at verse 2. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be given to you. Can you imagine the relief Esther felt when Xerxes extended his golden staff towards her? He was not displeased with her. She might actually be able to make her request to him after all. The king must have known that she wanted something desperately to have risked death coming to him uninvited. Perhaps that's why he spoke so generously to her, to set her mind at ease and to assure her that she had found favor in his sight once again. Esther cautiously explained, If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given to you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be granted. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Notice Esther's restraint in asking only for a second banquet with the king and Haman. We would have expected her to immediately bring up the plight of her people, right? But she did not. In fact, I think Esther's response is a surprise to many of us. But remember that Xerxes was not aware that Esther was Jewish, nor was Haman for that matter. And so, knowing that she was on dangerous ground, Esther wisely decided not to risk everything at once. Perhaps she wanted to make sure where the king stood on the matter of Haman's edict. Did he really know what it said? Had he agreed with it? Perhaps she also wanted to size up the wicked Haman. Was he really that close with the king? Did he have the king's confidence as much as he appeared to? There was much to discern before she made her appeal, 
if she hoped for a positive response from the king. Whatever her reasons, she felt this was the way to proceed. And as we shall soon see, God was at work, and this was all part of his plan. Verse 9. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits, but when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honoured him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I am the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she's invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Have a pole set up, reaching to a height of fifty cubits, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. This account shows us a lot about Haman's character, doesn't it? He couldn't wait to get home and boast to his family and friends about his wealth, power, position and favour, and yet all of that could not satisfy him as long as Mordecai still refused to bow to him. Perhaps to calm things his wife suggested, he'd just get rid of Mordecai. He could set up a pole in their very garden and impale the troublesome man on it the very next day. And the delighted Haman did just that. He set up a pole over 70 foot high within view of his house and made plans to get the necessary permission from the king early the next morning. However, as God would have it, verse 1 of chapter 6 says, That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. And this is very interesting. You would think that a king with insomnia would call for a concubine or perhaps a musician or even a snack, right? But he called for someone to come and read to him from the record books of his reign. And it seems that the reading went on all night. One of the accounts that just happened to be read to the king was the account of how Mordecai had uncovered the assassination plot and saved the king's life. And because these books also listed the honors that were given to people who had pleased the king, Xerxes said, what honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. As morning came, King Xerxes was thinking about the fact he'd not honoured Mordecai for his life-saving act, and he looked about for someone in his court to help make it right, and there, right outside the door, was Haman, waiting anxiously to talk to the king about putting Mordecai to death. But before he could say a word, the king asked his opinion about how to best honour a man who really deserved it. 
<laughs> Proud fool that Haman was, he believed that the king was wishing to honor him. And so he suggested parading the man through the town wearing a royal robe and riding on a horse that the king had ridden all the while proclaiming, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Well, imagine Haman's absolute horror at Xerxes' next words in verse 10. Go at once, the king commanded Haman, get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterwards, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Haman had no choice but to obey the king, but afterwards he rushed home in shame and poured out his humiliation to his wife and friends. It is possible that some of Haman's advisors here were officials that knew about the way that the God of the Jews had protected his people in the past. And with more foresight than they probably realized, they warned him in verse 13 that since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. What thoughts must have been in Haman's mind as he headed to the queen's second banquet? Did he feel secure enough in the favor of her invitation to quiet the troublesome words from his advisors? Or was he sensing the first rumblings of trouble on the horizon? Chapter 7 begins, So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet, and as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, an adversary and an enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? 
As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to a height of fifty cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he'd set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. In finally making known her request, Esther revealed that she herself was among the people who were to be destroyed by the edict, and she pleaded for their lives, pointing out the great loss to the king if all these people were removed as his subjects. It was such a wise approach to take, especially as she wasn't sure how he actually felt about the Jews. And this approach worked. Horrified, Xerxes immediately demanded to know who had made such a decree, and Esther named the man behind the plot, the vile Haman. Needless to say, this was not the banquet Haman had anticipated, but it seemed the king began to get the whole picture. It had been Haman who had concocted the evil story about the Jews, suggesting their complete destruction. And Haman had used the king's own authority to send out the decree calling for their annihilation. Xerxes angrily left the banquet room, trying to think through everything he'd just been told. Surely everything he thought he knew about Haman was in question now. Meanwhile, the shattered Haman, realizing the trouble he was in, fearing for his life, fell at Esther's couch and grasped at her feet in a desperate plea for mercy, only to be accused of assaulting the queen when the king returned to the hall. And in the custom of the Persians, the king immediately commanded that Haman be impaled on the very pole he had set up for Mordecai. What an amazing turn of events. What an incredible reversal of fortune. The proud Haman, so high and mighty at the start of the day, was disgraced and dead before the end of it. Undone by his own malice and schemes, he bore the humiliating death he had delighted in preparing for Mordecai. However, the danger to the Jewish people was far from over. Haman's decree, sealed with the king's ring, had been written into the unchangeable law of the Medes and the Persians, and not even the king himself could alter it. Would Esther and her people be wiped out from the face of the earth? Would God indeed save them? Well, to find that out, you'll have to join us next time. God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. Michelle's messages are also available on all major podcast platforms and on her website at intheword.com.